Welcome to episode 41 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to talk about emotional payoff in writing and how you can achieve it, if you can achieve it, if we can figure out how it is that people achieve it. <laughs> yeah, the the question of, of making something emotionally satisfying in a book. Obviously that's going to depend on every reader. You know, each individual reader is going to have a certain set of things that they want to see fulfilled by the end of a book to consider it satisfying. Um, for me, it's not like any one thing. Like I'm not somebody who needs like a happily ever after when it comes to romance or anything like that. I don't even necessarily need all the plot threads tied up for me. A satisfying conclusion is when I feel that there has been a complete and earned emotional journey for a character. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty broad. <laughs> um, so I don't know. What about you, Kelly? What, what would you, what, what do you look for in, a, in an emotionally satisfying conclusion? So for me, an emotionally satisfying conclusion is all about the buildup of tension and then release. And I'm not talking about tension between characters or tension, you know, in the story itself. I'm talking about my tension as the reader. When I'm reading something, there's something that I want, like that I want a character to do something or achieve something, or I want something to happen. And I spend the entire book waiting for it to happen. And then once it finally happens, I feel that release of getting that emotional satisfaction. And so I think that can manifest in a lot of different ways. For me personally, a lot of times it is tension in the relationships between characters themselves that is then resolved or released. Um, to give an example of something that's not a book, unfortunately, but that uh, is very much on my mind because as we've mentioned here before, I'm watching Avatar The Last Airbender for the first time. And our antagonist, uh, Zuko, has a an arc, an emotional arc over three seasons. And I haven't quite finished the series yet, but I'm past the halfway point in season three. And he starts out as an antagonist and he just finally had this big emotional breakthrough in the most recent episode that I watched where he finally, you know, he spent this whole time striving for his father's approval and been denied. And then he achieves his father's approval, but it's not what he really wants. And, you know, he goes through all of these things and then finally he figures out who he is and who he wants to be. And he stands up against his father and he, you know, lays everything out and just, it's so cathartic. It's an epic moment of emotional release. And I was like cheering when it happened. And it's the same thing with books. It's, I think for me, it's a tension that's built up in me, the reader, that I want something to come to fruition. And then when it happens, it's emotionally satisfying. Yeah. I mean, the whole Zuko storyline in Avatar, I, I'm, I'm like you, that that was something that I had been wanting forever. Um, 
Because Zuko is introduced to us, yes, as an antagonist, but he's incredibly sympathetic, even from our first meeting him, even though he is technically on the opposite side of the war from our protagonist, Aang. Um, But over the course of the series, we start to see his values... Values, yes, but like his desires start to shift, um, and what he starts, what he considers important to himself, start to shift a little bit, um, and so then he comes across this point where he has to choose: Do I go with what my new values? This is the end of season two, spoiler. But like, do I choose? You know where my values, his values have been changing and shifting. So do I go and continue down that path, or do I choose what I have always? wanted that's currently being offered to me and spoiler alert you guys he chooses what he has always wanted um what he has thought he has always wanted even though we as the audience know and even if zuko hasn't admitted it to it to himself yet that he doesn't want it anymore but he chooses it anyway Mm -hmm. um so then he has everything that he's ever wanted but it's still hollow and it brings him no happiness so the kind of the joy in season three that we're watching right now is that he's coming to that realization on his own. So it's not all these external forces telling him, this is not what you want anymore, Zuko. This, is, this shouldn't be important to you anymore. But now that he has it and he's living it and he's living his, quote, best life or theoretically should be living his best life, it's ultimately not satisfying and it doesn't make him happy. And he... Start and he fully embraces his shifting values that we'd seen over the course of the pretty much the previous two seasons. And when he fully accepts that, it is just like, you're like, finally, God, finally. <laughs> I just, mm-hmm. I spend so much of the show, and I, I've rewatched it. Kelly's watching it for the first time. Um, but I spent so much of the show just like wanting to throttle him, just like grabbing mm-hmm. him by the shoulders and be like, why can't you see? This is not what you want. <laughs> um, but I think that's what makes it such a satisfying payoff for Zuko is just we, part of it is actually delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. It's taken him this long to get to this point. But when it finally gets to that point, we're just like, oh, thank God. (laughs) Uh You're almost breathing a sigh of relief that, okay, now, you know, it's it's cleared the air. Um, There's another example. I mean, most of the examples I can think of are not really books. Um, And I don't necessarily think this is an entirely successful example. But we're talking, let's go back to Lost, which is a show that Kelly and I have discussed (laughs) before. We're talking about emotional payoff, though, and Lost doesn't have that. It doesn't actually have any payoff, to be completely honest. It doesn't answer, like, anything. Uh, (laughs) But you find the ending of Lost more emotionally satisfying than I do. Yes, for certain characters, anyway. I don't find it uniformly Mm. emotionally satisfying. Like, I don't find it emotionally satisfying as a whole. Um. But for individual character arcs, I find it satisfying. Like Sawyer and Juliet, I like. Um, They're kind of the only ones I like, though, to be completely honest, because I, like, look back on it, and I'm just kind of like, and Ben, Ben's story I like. Um, But, like, other characters, and especially Jack, I just don't care about Jack at all. And he lost my good opinion, like, four seasons before we got 
to the season, to the series finale. So, but so much time is spent building him up as a protagonist and building his emotional journey. But since he's already lost my investment, you know, he just, he squandered that badly. The character squandered that badly that I just didn't care. Hmm. Like at all. (laughs) And, but talking about emotional payoff is one thing because I, because I was so invested, particularly in Sawyer and Juliet, that when we got to their ending of their story and it was exactly what I wanted from their story, I found that satisfying. And the same thing with Ben, because I was already invested in Ben, that when we got to his story, I found that satisfying. But as a whole, especially when it came to the island because the thing that's connecting all of these disparate storylines together is the island. And the show has been building up since the beginning, hyping up the fact that they're all on there for a reason. And then you find out the reason, and it's the dumbest reason ever. Ever. <laughs> and the, the whole last season is such a hot mess in so many ways. Um... But there's that's Lost is a great example of promising a lot of things and not delivering on 98% of them. Yeah, I mm. so let's dissect why it doesn't deliver though. Like, what do you think are the promises that were implicitly set up in the first like two or three seasons that weren't delivered on by the end? I think the first half of the show is really heavy on the actual mysteries of it. The, you know, why, you know, what's the Dharma Initiative doing there? Who were the people, the original others before the Dharma Initiative? Who was, you know, why are there, why are women unable to have children on the island? All the, the questions that it raises, I think, lost began as a show that was going to introduce all these mysteries and then was going to resolve them, was going to give you actual answers um, to what those mysterious things were. It was much more of like, had a sci-fi sort of a feel to it in the beginning, kind of. And then halfway through, it totally changed gears and all but abandoned that, but kept introducing new questions, but had no interest in answering them anymore. You know, for a little while, we'd get some questions and then we'd get an answer that would contain within it a larger question, you know, but we just stopped getting any answers whatsoever. And it switched gears to being more about these characters, about who they were, about how they're all connected, which is present in the first season, for sure. That That's always been in Lost's DNA. Um, but it became the overriding, you know, we got really focused on the love triangles and we got really focused on everyone's, you know, interior lives. Um, but in ways that were not to me satisfying, I like character driven shows and I was, I was, I found the characters in Lost really compelling in the first few seasons and they just became like caricatures of themselves somehow. And we kept hitting the same story beats over and over and over again. Is it Jack or is it Sawyer? Is it Jack or is it Sawyer? Over and over and over. Um, you know, and just things that were just, it, it just 
felt like it was repeating itself and recycling material and that everything was really manufactured and it didn't feel like organic character growth anymore. It felt like they were just revealing things to be shocking and that those reveals of the flash forwards or the, the flashbacks didn't have any relevance to the present day. It just, it just got really muddled for me. So I was, I really bought into the first half of Lost, which was going to be answering crazy sci-fi questions with an ensemble cast that's really compelling. And then when it lost all of that, I, you know, I kind of not quite hate watching, but just, <laughs> I, I was so in, immersed in that point that I had to see it through, but it wasn't emotionally satisfying for me at the end because of course they didn't answer you know any of the questions I was in it for the answers and they didn't give me answers so of course that was going to be a but problem they did for me answer most of those questions except the answers we got were stupid they answered some in ways that were stupid but like they, there were so many that I felt weren't even close to addressed that were just that just, I don't know, it just really bugged me. I felt like they were creating this mythos that like everything was very deliberate and interconnected and Lost is a show with a, a lot of references. Like they would show books or play songs or they had all of this textual stuff in the background and in the DNA of the show that like led people to hunt for clues and like TV tropes was still active at this time. And I would go on TV tropes every day and there would be the lost forum with people like dissecting every little thing. And it seemed to reward a close reading in that way. And then it just all turned out to be for nothing or for dumb reasons. And, and yeah, and it just, it was so frustrating to me and the emotional quote unquote payoff that we get at the end with everyone awakening from their purgatory. That's not really purgatory, but is like the waiting but room of purgatory. heaven, it's but it's purgatory, the but it is- looks like an alternate universe, but it's not. And as they're like coming into their consciousness and remembering, you know, their true quote unquote lives and how they're all connected, like it just didn't. It just didn't work for me. One, because a lot of the things that we've, a lot of the things that awakened them, quote unquote, were significant moments that were echoes of significant moments that had happened in their island lives. So like when Claire is giving birth, that jolts her and Charlie into, you know, her awakening. I think Locks is like when he gets the back surgery and he can feel his feet again when he can walk. And then that remind like that awakens him. And so everybody gets like some significant thing, but that felt cheap because I'm like, we had these, these were real authentic moments that were really emotional, that were, you know, engaging, compelling moments that we saw played out in real time. And these are like cheap, cheap echoes of those moments to like awaken the, oh, I just hated it all. You guys, <laughs> the last season is terrible. From, like, beginning to end, it's pretty much terrible. And they bring back characters that had exited the show, like, several years earlier. And you bring them back for a cheap sort of, hey, remember them? And the moment that, like, defined them on the show for you guys? Um, see, the, the question, the, the only question that I really cared about on that show was what the island was. Right. 
all of the smaller stuff, the smaller mythos, who are the original others, you know, why is the Dharma Initiative there, all that blah, 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 blah. I didn't care about that so much as the greater question of what on earth the island was Mm -hmm. and why all these particular people are there. And the actual answer is that it's purgatory. Well, the island itself wasn't purgatory. The island was like the gate. No, the island is basically purgatory. <laughs> They're all there. I mean, it wasn't purgatory in the way that the alternate... The final season yeah, is, yeah. Like the, tinal, like the alternate timeline in the final season is. But the reason they're all there is for them to come to spiritual epiphanies before they move on. Mm. So that's the whole reason they're on the island, which, by the way many people called from the first season and then the, the everybody spent, was like no 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 yeah and then the creator spent all this time to be like no it's not actually purgatory no it's not and i'm like no but it is purgatory so <laughs> and so screw you <laughs> so screw you so i hated that and then the mystery of what the island was so we had the answer of why they're all there to receive some sort of spiritual epiphany and the religious elements of the show are like really heavy-handed by the end as well which uh, um, but the, so I had two questions, what the island was, why they were there. I had the answer of why they were all there. Nah, wasn't, it was something that we all kind of suspected. So yeah. we had been misled to think that it was something else, which was why it felt so cheap by the end. Mm-hmm. And then the question of what the island was, I was less concerned about the actual what it was, you know, like I didn't care if it was a real island, if it was like a living entity or what. But the whole point is like they're all on the island because they need to protect the island because reasons. Yeah. Hand waving, golden light. And basically <laughs> like the whole climax of the show I still don't understand. Like Jack has to give up his life to like plug a bunghole in a mystic cave. And you're just like, this is, what, what is wrong with this show? This makes no sense. Like, why, what is the point of this? This is an example of, so what we wanted that we would have found emotionally satisfying is if the questions you set up in the beginning are answered by the end. I think that's pretty much it. And Lost fails on both levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that we're pointing to Lost as, as an example that, the, the creators of Lost believed that to be an emotionally satisfying ending. In fact, that was their defense, that we might not have answered all your questions, but emotionally you will be satisfied by the end of our show. That was like actually what they said to excuse themselves from the way that it ended. Right. And I think we are both in agreement that that doesn't work. I have, in this, in the time that we've been discussing Lost, I have thought of another property that I do not think has an emotionally satisfying ending, but I don't think, and this is the question up for discussion, I don't think the intention was for it to be emotionally satisfying at the end. And so my questions are, do you agree whether or not this is supposed to be emotionally satisfying? And if not, um, is that a viable thing to put forth in fiction? And my example that I'm talking about is Mockingjay from the Hunger Games. Because I, I, it, I don't find that emotionally satisfying, and I don't think it's supposed to be emotionally satisfying. Because I theoretically... It, well, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you. I don't find it emotionally satisfying, but I also actually think it's a viable ending. Right. 
I agree too. And I mean, and technically too, like on paper, I got a lot of the stuff that I quote unquote wanted, you know, like out, out of everyone in that, if I was going to ship anybody, I was shipping Peta and Katniss. They end up together. You know, obviously I wanted the rebellion to succeed. That happens, you know, they overthrow the capital. So like all the things that I would have checked off on my list of like how I want this series to end did technically happen. And yet it's a bleak book and it does not end with any sense of emotional fulfillment or satisfaction. I was not left when I finished that book and closed it. I was not left with any sort of like feeling of completion or feeling that, you know, everything was okay. <laughs> like none of that. Well, I don't know if it, I felt that there was a sense of completion. It was just bleak though. <laughs> um, for those of you guys who have not read the series, I do apologize. I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you. But basically, the ending of that book, like Harry Potter, it has an epilogue, which I loathe. I loathe the epilogue in Harry Potter, too. So it's just yeah, kind of a trash thing. But the one in Mockingjay basically shows us a portrait of a future where Katniss and Peeta are married and they have two kids. It's not emotionally satisfying in the way that we typically expect it to be, right? That they've gone through this horrific process, they've overthrown the previous government, and so now they're settled down and they're building a new life for each other, with each other, with their children. And the reason it's not a happy ending is because Katniss is emotionally dead inside. Yeah, she's traumatized. She, as is Peta, basically. As is Peta. They are two people who are suffering from PTSD, and they will be grappling with that for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's why it feels bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no real indication that they're going to heal, even though they are together, they have children, and you know it's it's great that they live in a world where they don't the Hunger Games don't exist anymore. But the war that they both went through has cost them both so much that they can't come back from that. And I think that was, in fact, Suzanne Collins's point about it. Yeah, I think it was very intentional. And I think it's valid. I mean, I think that Katniss and Peeta went through horrific horrific things and that it makes sense that those things would have traumatized them. And so I'm not my, my, I don't bring it up to, um, to negate the validity of that ending that that's, you know, that that's not my point, but my point is that it did not feel emotionally satisfying because of course I've gotten to know these characters and love these characters and I want the best for them. I want that. I want them to be happy. I want, you know, all good things for them. And these characters do not get all good things. They get, you know, the best that they can and they don't have the capacity to even fully in- embrace, you know, the peace that they now get to live in because they are so traumatized. So it's not that that's not a valid thing and it's not like a, it's a, in a way it's a brilliant ending. Um, but it was not emotionally satisfying for me. And so I'm bringing it forth as an example of like, do books need to be emotionally satisfying in order to be successful? I think, 
it the answer sort of depends on the intent of mm. the author. Now, I am of the school where the author is dead and it doesn't matter and the text is the text is the text. Yep. However, I still think even without knowing an author's intentions, you can still intuit intent from the text. So I could probably say, and now that I'm looking, thinking back on The Hunger Games, I don't think it was ever Suzanne's Collins' intent to give us a, quote, happy ending like that. And and therefore, while the ending isn't emotionally satisfying, or it's not emotionally satisfying because it's not what I would have wanted for the characters, it doesn't feel like a betrayal, if that makes sense. I don't think it feels like a betrayal of the characters. There, are, I have other issues with Mockingjay and the series as a whole, mm. but that have nothing really to do with emotional payoff because... Mm-hmm. The ending we would have all wanted, you know, because we're emotionally invested in Katniss, is for her to have come through the war and she's triumphant and she has, you know, a happy life ahead of her. But that was never going to be the case. She did whatever she could to survive in book one, including faking a relationship with somebody in front of, like, national television. And then she basically, that book ends very unsatisfactorily where they're back home and then they have to face the consequences of what they had to go through in book one. And then the moment you think Katniss might have any bit of peace, she's immediately put back into the games. And then that in itself unravels her even further. And then the third book the one person who has actually been a constant for her through all of this trauma, PETA, has been taken away from her and then hijacked, turned into a completely Mm. different person. So when you look at the series that way and the emotional trajectory of where that story is going, it's really the story of a survivor, of somebody who continues to continue, basically just continues because to die would be, you know, just giving up. And then even if it, she wants to give up. She can't give up, you know, because other people need her and they use her. And it's, so it's this really bleak story from start to finish. So it's not quite like, say, another book that, you know, is promising a happy ending, you know, implicit in the text somehow that, you know, they succeed over a, an obstacle and a triumph and this and that, that it sets you up with these expectations that something is going you know, that things are going to go well or, or, you know, you're going to get that payoff that you want and it doesn't deliver, that feels like a betrayal. Right. But I don't think it feels like a betrayal in Mockingjay because I think that was the intent from the beginning. Um, I think there, because there are two types of unsatisfactory emotional endings, maybe three. There's one where... It's just not personally satisfying to you. Right. Which is the case of The Hunger Games. It's not personally satisfying to me. But I think that the ending is valid. And what was, in fact, the point from the beginning. Then there's the it's not emotionally satisfying because it wasn't earned. And then there's the betrayal. I think... Well, we can kind of go through that. So we did talk about the first kind of, of not satisfying ending, which is the, it's not personally satisfying, but the text, it has, it's earned its unsatisfying ending, if that makes sense. Right. 
So then let's talk about the endings that are unsatisfying and because it's not earned. The execution of an ending, and I can't necessarily say about how to do it because I don't know how to do it. I can only do it after I've written it. Does that make sense? Endings are something I'm not particularly good at because I never know what my endings are. I don't know how to get to my endings. I just do it and then fix it later. But when you earn, when you earn that ending, you have spaced out through your manuscript clues or signposts um, and every obstacle that your protagonist overcomes gets bigger and the stakes get more intense you know so that the when you get to the ending it's it's earned and paid off and whatever so when something fails on an execution level it's usually because it's been improperly set up it comes in too late or it's set up in the beginning and then not followed through on so an example of something that I think is not followed through on is Deathly Hallows yeah there's interesting things going on in that book and by interesting, it's just interesting. It's neither good nor bad. Because you have the all the six books leading up to book seven have been about setting up Harry versus Voldemort. And then for about two-thirds of the seventh book, you get all this stuff about Dumbledore. You have spent the past two books setting up Horcruxes and then switch gears suddenly in book seven for the first two-thirds of it to the Hallows. And so that, you know, so that's like a, it feels like an 11th hour gear change. And you're kind of like, but what about the Horcruxes? And that part of that is because Harry is, you know, obsessed with it. But even so, it's just like on a storytelling perspective, you're just like, but we spent... Yeah all this time right building up to this <laughs> especially from jk rowling who is exceptionally good at planting things early books mm -hmm. earlier than she needs to and you know she's de demonstrated that over and over and over again that the things that she plants early on in her books that seem inconsequential come back later and are hugely relevant and there's ample opportunity for her to plant something about the Hallows. I mean, Harry already has the invisibility cloak. Like, there is something you could certainly put about Ron being like, oh, that's just like in this tale, Beetle the Bard, but <laughs> right. I have this, you know, babbity-rabbity, blah-blah-blah. Like, just throw away lines. They're always in the library. Hermione knows everything. Like, even if you'd had some throwaway mention of them so that we had heard the word hallows before so that when we come to it later we're like wait this is a thing that we know about we just didn't know it was important you know she's so good at that usually and the fact that she didn't do it for this i just don't understand well the other problem with deathly hallows as a book 
separate from the rest of the series. So as you know, it, you you spend six books building up Harry versus Voldemort, and you seed in the idea of the Horcruxes, right? Then you spend a huge chunk of book seven about the Hallows, only to have that storyline actually go nowhere. Yeah, we're not going to use the Hallows. We're not going to use the Hallows. There, it's it. You know, there's a there's a plot about the Elder Wand, but you didn't have to bring the Hallows into it. You could have just been like, you could have just been like, literally, Voldemort is looking for the most powerful wand ever. Done. You didn't have to bring in the Hallows at all. Um, this is like a master weapon that he's looking for. You know, that in itself is perfectly fine. So then it maybe it's a race against time. Like, there's many other ways you could have structured it. And so then the Hallows takes up a huge chunk of book real estate that ultimately doesn't go nowhere. And so then you have the pacing issue that we talked about previously in this book where you spend so much time camping because you're learning about the Hallows. And then they only... Because they have four Horcruxes left to destroy, right? So Voldemort had made seven. They destroyed three previously throughout the series. There's four left. And you think, okay, that neatly structures your book, you know, you know, into quarters, right? You've got one in the first quarter and then blah, 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 blah. No. It's slightly over halfway through the book before they destroy the first one. And then the other three... It, it takes so much emotional effort from them. You have this whole storyline with Ron and him overcoming his insecurity and him fighting the locket and all this sort of stuff. And then all the others are literally just summarily destroyed of with kind of no effort, no thought, nothing. <laughs> with nothing. And the, the ring that we see with Dumbledore in book six is like out in an island in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. surrounded by dead bodies, and there's a potion that poisons you and makes you crazy that you have to drink to get to the bottom of it. It's like hardcore, difficult stuff. And then they break into Gringotts and get the other one, which was complicated, but I feel like was also just really complicated because they just, they just made it harder than it had to be, <laughs> I feel like. And then the other two are just like, whoops, crab destroyed it by accident. And, oh, Hermione did it off page. And it's like, really? Like All of a sudden, Hermione remembered the basilisk, that there's apparently the rotting corpse of the basilisk that's still there from when Harry killed it like five years ago. And, and then Ron, Ron just suddenly fakes. has the ability to remember yeah. how to speak Parseltongue. This, this, is, this is what I mean by this is not set up properly. This is not, this is not earned the destruction of the locket was earned because you spend so much of that first part of the book building up Ron's insecurity and um, and the sort of the way the locket affects them all emotionally. And so when Ron finally destroys it, it's satisfying. There's the emotional payoff there because you spent enough time with that aspect of, of the Horcruxes. Yeah. But then the other three are basically taken care of. Like, two are pretty much destroyed within, like, the span of, like, five pages. Um, and this is, a, like, a, like an 800-page book. Yeah. And then we get to the whole confrontation between Harry and Voldemort at the end of book seven. And so you you think it's going to be this epic battle. But ultimately, it comes down to what Harry has always done to Voldemort, which is to disarm him 
Expelliarmus. And then there's this whole weird thing about who actually owns the Elder Wand that is needlessly complicated. That is, it, it basically feels like a gimmick, right? That the ownership of the Elder Wand passes from, you know, passes to the wizard who defeated the previous one. But then there's this, like, weird thing where, like, there's this, like, weird detour in the Malfoy Manor. And because of that weird detour, now on a mere technicality, it, it's Harry so... happens to, yeah. It's so Baroque and unnecessarily complicated for basically ultimately a showdown, showdown that lasts about two pages. You know, he disarms... You know, Voldemort, and I can't even remember how Voldemort dies. I really can't remember. I th- It just, like, it backfires on him, right? I think so. It, it Like, I think the spell bounces off. Yeah. The spells bounce off each other, and it strikes Voldemort. And I think that's how he dies. But it's just a mess. This book is a hot mess. And... A lot of other emotional things that I did not get satisfaction on are sort of trivial compared to this, which I felt like it wasn't quite a betrayal because it wasn't really like she had set me up for anything and then completely didn't deliver on it. She just didn't deliver on it well. Um, But there were like other small things. The fact that both Tonks and Remus die off page. Um, there's just like a lot of little things in that book that I was just like, this is not earned. This is not affecting or satisfying or anything. So, and I, and I say this to somebody who loves Harry Potter and who also believes JK Rowling is a much better writer than this. That's why I feel disappointed in it because you're much better than this, Joe. You're much better than this. You can do better than this. You have proven you've been able to do better than this. So that's kind of the ending where I feel like it's not executed to its fullest potential. Where you haven't given it enough time or it just doesn't go anywhere. A storyline that you expect to have more significance doesn't actually go anywhere. And then you have the betrayal, which we did sort of talk about. I think Lost is probably a good a good good example of the betrayal. <laughs> because you are set up and led to believe that you should be wanting one thing and then at the very end the creator's like, "Oh no, 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 no. You just were reading it wrong the whole time." And this is really the this is how you should have looked at looked at the series. So, it how to fix it, <laughs> or how to identify it? I guess in your own work. I think, I think it's like with anything else. You know, I think you can think about it closely related to the character development and the character arc in that way, because a lot of the emotional payoff moments are going to be character related. Um, you want to plant your seeds so that it's something that's in the back of your reader's mind and that it grows organically. And 
you know, when it happens, you want that sense of like, yes, or, you know, like joy or, or whatever it is that you feel, you know, you, you want that to happen. And I think that part of the important thing that you were talking about earlier too, is making sure that it is earned and has enough space. This is why a lot of Insta love is not emotionally satisfying. Like, insta-love mm-hmm. romances because they just look at each other and boom, they're in love and they're meant to be and they'll die for one another and it's all very tragic and they're both really beautiful and they both have, you know, horrific backstories <laughs> and, you know, whatever. But, um, and, and so people can ship that as being like, oh, it's so swoony or, oh, you know, whatever. But it's not emotionally satisfying because there was no... You know, we're told that it's sad and we're told that it's tragic, but it just all happens so quickly that the audience doesn't have time to get invested in it. And I think that that's the the emotional payoff is really about reader investment. It's if people are not invested, it's not going to have payoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you don't care, then there's actually no payoff. And... I think the other thing about emotional payoff is this is where you do have to think about the ending of your book. You want to think about what you want the takeaway from your book to be. And it this is not necessarily something, or it's not something that I can necessarily come up with while I'm in the middle of drafting. But once I'm mm-hmm. done and the story is on the page, and I can look at the the work as a whole, then I can kind of come to a conclusion or formulate an idea of what I want the takeaway to be. And the takeaway from a book is often the theme. I don't think you should ever write with a theme in mind, if that makes sense. But usually when you're writing a book or you have a story you're trying to work through something. At least that's the way it is for me. I'm trying to work through something. And that theme emerges over the course of the writing of that story. And once I've done, or once I've finished writing the draft and I've set it aside and I let it kind of sit and percolate for a while and I look at it again, then there is a takeaway, a very clear takeaway that kind of rises to the surface. And so when you kind of, Get when you form that clear idea of what that theme is of your book now, that what your book is technically, this is the what is your book about question. That's what I mean by takeaway. What is your book about? Then you go back and then you revise with that in mind. So my book is about this. So how do I go about with the character interaction and the plot and the relationships so that it all feeds into this theme that I've been trying to work through? So that's kind of it. Like I said, don't do this when you're drafting because I think that actually kills the book. And it also leads to a flat climax. If you're like, I'm going to write about this. And then you work toward it. Just to me, I feel like it often feels soulless. And so don't, Right with that in mind, but definitely when you're revising and you're rereading your work, what do you want the book to be about? 
and then go through, go about strengthening everything so that the takeaway is strong and clear. And I think that's what's emotionally satisfying. When what the reader thinks that the book is about and everything that happened in the text are in alignment. That's when it's satisfying because sometimes you get books where the author says it's about this, but the text does not support that. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, that's what's, that's one reason something isn't emotionally satisfying or the author wants you to think it's about this. And then at the very last minute says, no, no, it was about this the entire time. That is what I call the betrayal. (laughs) That is a cheap trick. My friends do not indulge in it. Um, this often happens with like, well, it happened with lost as we mentioned before, but like unreliable narrators narrating in like the first person who then don't, tell you something important yep for the express purpose of misleading the reader i hate it i don't necessarily mind if it's like a third person point of view and we don't have all the pieces but if it's a first person narrator and he's like i'm just going to tell you the story and i'm not going to tell you a key and important part of my story because i want you to be surprised by the twist i hate it that's a betrayal and that is not earned (laughs) um yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other examples of either betrayals or things that work or I don't know, I feel like I've said my piece about it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, this is going to be different from book to book. And mm-hmm. that that's the whole point about writing, right? The whole point about writing is to convey in words whatever you want it want to convey you have to you know the clarity of language and the clarity of how ideas are conveyed is what is at the heart of good writing Uh so when you are accurately and convincingly able to convey what you want to say that's when you theoretically have payoff at the end so yeah i don't know Got anything else? I think that's it. So, what are you working on? You know the answer to this. I know, I know. We need to find another question, because my answer is the same, too. (laughs) I mean, it's rough. It's slow going. It's, um, I think... So, you know, we mentioned, we were talking earlier in this podcast and a little bit last week about theme and takeaway and stuff like that. I don't write consciously with the theme in mind, but I do write with an emotional story in mind. I need to know what the point of a book is. <laughs> why, why am I writing this story? What is the takeaway that I want? What is the emotional journey that I want from my book? And for a very long time, I had absolutely no idea what that was going to be. This was kind of an unusual case for me where I knew the plot, as in I knew what the events but the ending were going to be, but not why, not the point, not why we should care about this ending. I didn't know what journey I wanted 
the characters to go through. And so a lot of this involves me journaling and free writing and just talking to myself uh, via pen and paper, you know, and I think I'm, I think it's starting to kind of come together. I think I'm starting to figure out what that emotional journey is going to be for my protagonist and what the story is. And that to me is always intertwined, you know, emotional journey and story has always been intertwined. Plot which is, again, as I've admitted many times, is a weakness of mine. But I think it's secondary to the things that the characters go through and what changes them and what they learn from the actions that they take. Um, so I think it's starting to come together. I think I'm starting to have an idea of of the story and the shape. Um, so that that's helpful for me. Um, because And the other thing is it's like I had to figure out what makes this story different from the previous book because I didn't want to write the same story over again. I didn't want to write the same emotional journey over again because then what is the point of writing a sequel? I think what's so great about like Toy Story, the Toy Story movies from Pixar. So we had the first Toy Story and then we had the two sequels. And I really like them. I think that because they didn't, make the movie until they had an actual story to tell mm-hmm. in each each one that was different and and it built on previously established relationships but it was a whole different emotional journey in every movie and I think that's what makes it successful because I feel like too often you get sequels that are just a retread and a rehashing yeah, for the sake of having a sequel yeah and that's really been my issue is because I was, I was like, I don't want to write the same book over again. I mean, what's the point of writing the same book over again? At least for me, that's not what I want to do. And I feel like to write the same emotional story over again would just be taking the character right back to the beginning in terms of growth. So there's no point in that. And so when I finally sort of figured out, okay, this is not the coming-of-age story that I wrote in book one, because... Essentially, my protagonist is an adult now. You know, she's already come of age. So then what's the next stage of her life and what is the next, basically the next thing she has to learn about herself and what's the the narrative of that part of her journey? So that's what I've been grappling with and what I've been thinking with and I think I'm starting to approach a breakthrough. So, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, so where's chapter one, by the way? Oh, I know. You're calling me out publicly. Yeah, so my writer's studio thing, as I mentioned, got um, delayed, but I think I'm picking up the keys on Friday, so that will be great. I have been doing my writing, but I've also succumbed to the Olympics a little bit, uh, which eats into a lot of my writing time, unfortunately. But JJ has been shaming me lately because I was supposed to send her my first chapter and it's not done. And I hate being shamed. I feel like I'm in school again and I have forgotten my homework and I'm in trouble. And that's a very bad feeling for somebody like me who is driven by external validation and other people's approval. And so, oh, JJ is just looking at me now. If only this was a video (laughs) podcast and you could see her face. She is so disapproving. Oh, my God. I'm, like, blushing. I'm embarrassed. (laughs) 
this is why you want her as your critique partner, people. And I'm sorry, she's mine and I will not share. Um, <laughs> except for those people that she's already critique partners with besides me, because I know there are others, but no new people. She's all mine. <laughs> Go away. Um, yeah. So now as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm immediately going to uh, take my headphones off and start typing and then send you everything that I have because I have been pub- been publicly chastised. You asked for it. Literally, you I asked did. for it. <laughs> I did. I really, truly did. And I mean it. I, I, this is my own goal. Nobody is forcing me to complete this goal. This is a goal I set for myself. So yes, I am bright red, moving on to other things. I haven't read anything lately, have you? <laughs> oh, no. Not at all. Not even nope. remotely. Not even audiobooks right now. I am, I'm mostly catching up on my podcasts. So I've, mm-hmm. like, run through all the podcasts. So nothing fiction. Um, and aside yeah. from the research books, nothing, absolutely nothing new. This will be a very boring part of the segment. I know. If you guys have, like, ideas for temporary segments we can do while we get through this drafting process that would be great maybe we could do some listener questions if you guys have questions we can answer them or something else i don't know but think of something else for us to talk about at the end here because we have nothing to recommend and nothing to share with you (laughs) yeah yep yep no off menu recommendations this week i don't believe Mm -mm. um nope I, i literally don't have even have new activities I, cause normally if I'm not reading or if I'm not watching, I'm usually doing something else, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I don't know, I've taken up a new sport or a new hobby or this or that. Nope. Literally nothing. I haven't even been cooking. <laughs> no cooking, no crafting, nothing. Just this is me and my book and sitting down and just hammering it out until it works. Um, so that's, that's pretty much me i don't i don't have anything so yeah. between so yes yeah, send us your questions your comments uh we do love those reviews that you guys um when you guys review us so we do want to call that out and thank thank you guys um and maybe read one or two that we really love yeah we love our reviews that you guys leave us and we have decided to read them aloud on the podcast because we think that they're great and we appreciate you guys and some of them are really funny so this was our first ever review that we got almost a year ago the podcast is almost a year old that's crazy whoa yeah Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll have to do something special for like our year anniversary. But this is a review from J. Evan L. Perfect podcast for authors in waiting. Thank you for this. What a fantastic podcast for us authors who have yet to cross through the traditional publishing door. Oh, yay. We're really... Thank you, J. Evans L. Thank you. And we're really grateful that this is actually helping you guys because... I mean, Kelly and I can do this all the time because this is literally what our conversations actually sound like. <laughs> yeah, this talking. is why we decided to do this podcast because JJ was like, we talk about this stuff all the time anyway. We should just record it yeah. and maybe have like an outline. <laughs> maybe. I mean, we actually started with like kind of much more detailed notes and an outline and then now we just mostly wing it. Shh, secrets that we're spilling <laughs> about what podcasting is like. Um, but we, I, we are really grateful that this is helping you guys. I think, you know, we, we would like to continue it because it's reaching people and Mm -hmm. we like hearing that. So definitely 
go and rate us and leave us a review. If not just to bump us up in the in the ratings, although that does stroke our egos pretty nicely as well. But you know, to give us feedback and let us know what you want to hear more of, what you like, what you don't like. So yeah, that that's pretty good for me. Yeah. That is all for this week. Next week, we are going to have our second ever query critique podcast where we read queries aloud on the podcast with the identifying information removed and we offer up our critiques and tips and identify the things that are working and not working. So we're very excited about that. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in your queries for us to review. I'm not sure yet how many we're going to discuss, but we'll definitely pick a few of them uh, and that will be really wonderful so as always if you want more please subscribe via itunes stitcher podcast pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please do rate and review when you get a chance as it does help other listeners find the podcast and you may have your review read on on the podcast itself so yay If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.